we were really trying to recapture a Jewish past that we felt had been lost. Mm -hmm. But we didn't want to just take it lock, stock, and barrel. It wasn't a retreat into orthodoxy. No. So it isn't a choice between living in the contemporary mm -hmm. moment or doing the Jewish thing. You could do both. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashivenu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. I'm so happy to welcome today my teacher and my friend, Rabbi Michael Strasfeld. Michael is the Rabbi Emeritus of SAJ, which for much of its life, for nearly 100 years, was uh, spelled out as the Society for the Advancement of Judaism. It was Rabbi Mordecai Kaplan's synagogue, the founding thinker of Reconstructionism. It recently has gone uh, through a new branding, is now uh, spells out those initials as Judaism that stands for all. And in addition, Michael's a, a really pr uh, prolific author. He was the editor of all three volumes of the groundbreaking Jewish catalogs and of several books. We'll probably talk about them over the course of our conversation. Welcome, Michael. It's so good to be with you. Thank you. Um, there's so much to talk about. We're focusing this season on constructions of community and Jewish uh, thinking about building up community. Um, you know, from a Jewish perspective, what that means in the larger environment, uh, with some thoughts about how that is a, a source for cultivating resilience. And we've talked about maybe kind of investigating your some of your the experiments and the projects that you've poured yourself into kind of chronologically. So I want to take you back to the establishment of Chavarat Shalom, which was um, is a, still a a, a, a lovely and thriving community and a, an affiliated community of the Reconstructionist movement and was uh, in its establishment a really groundbreaking experiment in American Jewish life. Can you reflect? Sure. As you said, the Chavrat Shalom, which was located in the Boston area, um, basically in Somerville, Massachusetts, was one of the early Chavarot. And Chavarot comes from the word Chavara, which means fellowship. And these were, it was a group of people that wanted to get together and live a, a Jewish life um, together. You know, so it was an intentional community. I mean, I, I think about two things. I mean, just two thoughts. One is we think so much about the American ethos as being a commitment to in, individualism. And so the kind of countercultural nature of that impulse from the American place. And I'm thinking about um, that there were a lot of communitarian experiments in, in American life at that time, and then the deep Jewish roots of that impulse. So how uh, evident was that? How much on the surface were those? Well, I, th I think the, one of the interesting things about the Chavarah and other pieces of what might be called the Jewish counterculture is really the context as often is in Jewish life, is the larger American culture that's going on. And so there was very much, as you said, a movement towards community as part of the American counterculture, uh, even going so far as there being communes that would, um, some would go back to, back to the land and others that would certainly share resources. It was, they were really communitarian. It's, Interesting that in the Jewish counterculture, 
I don't think it went that far. It was, um, and it's interesting to speculate why, but it was, uh, it was a sense of we wanted to live together in community. And in some ways, perhaps a reaction to a feeling that the communities that existed in the Jewish community with, I guess, yeah, community yeah, with large yeah. uh, synagogues were often too large and felt impersonal and, and only on paper communities that people really didn't know each other and weren't really connected in these large kind of impersonal institutions, at least in our view of them. Do you think it was a reaction to like suburbanization and driving to synagogue and uh, uh, move away from like a more of like a shtibel, a more like of a neighborhood-based uh, religious center or even just dense ethnic neighborhoods? That's uh, interesting. I mean, I think ultimately the the Chabarai and, and other similar groups were in urban settings. I mean, Somerville is an urban suburb of of Cambridge and Massachusetts and Boston. Uh, I, I think that was more to do with where people were because mm-hmm. the members were people in their twenties, you know, graduate students, or you know, beginning to do, do do jobs, and so I think that's where they were found. Though I do think the sense of American Judaism as being uh, this suburban Jewish experience, which many of the the members of the Kabbara had grown up in. Uh, I grew up actually in urban. But, yeah, yeah, you're, but, you're a New Yorker, right? Like no, a, Boston. A, a Boston. Boston. Yeah, Boston. Um, but I think it was also how the world was perceived, yeah. you know, and yeah. in that sense, you think about Philip Roth's fi- fiction mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. that world, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it was very Philip Rothian to mm-hmm. say it, but but there was, you know, that that picture was felt not much of a community and not very vibrant and and a lot of a passivity in yeah. those synagogues and performative, like a, a more about what you um, what you wore or. Not not necessarily about deeply felt commitments, more about showing up on certain days, wearing certain things. Yeah, I was, yeah. So there was right there was the what people, how people dressed, yeah. you know, and yeah. but also I I, I think um, you know the um, the subtitle of the Jewish catalog, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is uh, a do-it-yourself kit, and that sense that. In synagogues, the rabbi and the cantor would stand in front, and and they would lead the service. And most of the time, there was, you know, dead deadly silence in the congregation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so that they were being Jewish for you. Mm-hmm. And and in the Federation world, which was also reaching its the peak of its yeah, okay. uh, around the Six Day War, um, was like, well, we're we're helping Jews. Elsewhere, we're helping mm-hmm. Jews in Israel. We're helping save Soviet Jewry. Mm-hmm. All, you know, very important and valid causes. But, you know, what were those people doing for their own Judaism? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that was the fundamental impulse behind um, trying to recapture a Judaism that was was ours as individuals and in the setting of a community. So when you came together. To live, 
was the Jewishness, was it about religion? Was it about uh, just about ethnicity? Was what, did, you, did you guys think about it or was it all negotiated? H- how much of the religious impulse uh, shaped the initial? I, I think in some ways it was all those things perhaps. And the truth is there were a variety of chavarot, chavara. Yeah. And so people used to say about the the three early ones that, you know, the Boston one, Chavrat Shalom, was religious in its orientation. Mm-hmm. The New York one was intellectual. Mm-hmm. And the Washington one was political. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as all such things, there's some truth, but but the larger truth is there were pieces of all those mm-hmm. elements there. And and the fourth is is community. Mm-hmm. And it was actually the most ambitious part of the of the agenda of those those groups and it, it was being the most ambitious i think it was succeeded and also didn't succeed mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the the living together piece or the community building piece beyond sharing space well maybe useful to explain a little bit how the community building took place and again each group is is different, um, but um, there would be communal meals weekly. Um, there would uh, be retreats um, where the group would go away, and you know, for a couple of days over a holiday weekend or just over a Shabbat weekend. Um, and that was obviously an opportunity to have a more intense mm-hmm. experience. But the, the, the truth is that for most of the people in the Chabura, this was the center of their life. Mm-hmm. So you spend a lot of time in, in the various activities, whether it's classes during the week, the communal things, or just we we actually decided to put a washer and dryer in the basement of the Chabrat Shalom, which, again, unusually had its own building. Um, and we did that because we thought, oh, this was a way to bring some people to, mm-hmm. together. And they'll mm-hmm. just hang out really while strategic. you're doing it. And yeah. there'll be, you know, exchanges. So. I think that was that was all positive and and it was a community around Jewish things like pray prayer and um study uh so and social justice but there was also just in that sense um bringing people together but it's it's a intentional communities are challenging yeah they're tough they're tough so I want to actually loop back to the Jewish catalogs, but I, the way that the Chavara movement really uh, took off and continues to this day is um, the notion of intimate and ongoing groups, whether they are within larger systems, within established synagogues, or freestanding. Um, uh, and there's also the National Chavara Committee that was established to foster and connect and, and provide that you, 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 you and David Teutsch were the founders. You were the, yeah, we were, but yeah, I was yeah. The, the first the chair, first chair. There, yeah. you know, so, and then they had, they continue to thrive with a weekly summer retreat. That is, you know, a, 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 some folks, that's their main commitment and they, they go through. But so how did the, I, I'm, I presume, but I've never asked you this, that the Jewish catalog emerged out of the Chavarat Shalom ethos. Is that me projecting that back into history or did that really? No, no, it, it really, uh, it, uh, um, there's a variety of different stories, but the, the one that focuses on the Chavarat Shalom 
is that um, people were sitting around and it was coming up on the fall holiday of Sukkot um, where you build a sukkah, which is a, a booth, a temporary structure, supposedly to remember the Israelites wandering in the desert. And people saying, well, well, we don't remember how we did it last year. And someone said, gee, wouldn't it be great if there was a book that would tell you how to do that? And, you know, another place where it came from was the whole Earth Catalog, mm -hmm. which was a huge, um, you know, bestseller and really represented the American counterculture, you know, in a, in a, a, a book form. Um, and so, um, well, first there was a, two people wrote a master's thesis for, uh, for a program at Brandeis where they had to describe the, uh, the project. They didn't have to do it. But then Richie Siegel, who was one of the, uh, one of those people decided, well, to do it. And then, uh, my then wife Sharon Strasfeld, and then I joined to be the the editors of the catalog, and it was really um, like the whole Earth catalog in some ways. It was really an, an attempt to express the Jewish lives that we were we were living and we were trying to live, and we asked basically all the people we knew in this Jewish counterculture to write different articles um, for the book. I mean, it's it's really kind of hard, I think, for a generation that's rising up now in the age of the internet, where you know, you, okay, how do you build a sukkah? And you type it in, and maybe you get, hopefully, you come to Ritual Well and our, you know, our wonderful website, or you go to the Chabad website, or you go to the Sukkah Projects, amazing. But when did it come out? Seventy three. Seventy three, like in the seventies, when I was coming up in the eighties, there it was. So I can tell you, Michael, that like I made my. It's very crazy. I made my first Talit in sixth grade Hebrew school, and the girls made them, and the boys made them, and I think they presumed that the girls would give them to men in their family. But I, <laughs> so so when it was time to tie the tzitziot, like we looked to that chapter of the Jewish catalog, and the first time I wanted to make challah on my own, we, I, 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 there are many Jews who have family recipes handed down, but we didn't have them, so I looked to that catalog, and every time I moved into. And I had photocopied the chapter on hanging a mezuzah because in that period of time, in my early, in my teen, late late teens and early twenties, when I was moving essentially every year, I could never remember which way to point the mezuzah and what the brachot were, what the blessings were, and so I had in my files for when I moved the photocopy from the Jewish catalog on on hanging a mezuzah. It was, it really was this guide for if I wanted Jewishness. Uh, expressed on my terms in my life. Here was a map, and it was about um, it was it was educational rather than prescriptive. It was right. here's what it is, and here's what the roots are, and and here are some choices, and and you know, and it was it was so liberating. It was really very empowering. Right, I, I think that's one important piece that. It wasn't prescriptive. There were, there were other books that came out around mm -hmm. that time which said, here's how you be a Jew. And the, the, just the fact that it was called a catalog, which means that it's, it's a catalog. You, you pick and choose and you, know, you, take, you read one chapter, you do this, uh, rather than here's the, here's the whole thing, mm -hmm. you know, and you got to buy the whole mm -hmm. package. And, and I, I think that was really important. And 
and it was really in a just like the story about the sukkah, you know, the building the booth. It was really that sense that all that material wasn't accessible, yeah, and that's one of the reasons we decided not to call it the Jewish Earth Catalog, because the, the whole Earth Catalog, if you wanted to build a geodesic dome, which was a big Buckminster Fuller thing in those days, they had like a book. They, were, they referred you to the book, and they the whole Earth Catalog showed you a page from the book mm-hmm. and a, you know, cute drawing of the, the geodesic dome or whatever. And then you, you say, oh, great, I'll go get the, the real thing. We couldn't do that. Like mm-hmm. We couldn't say, yeah. look in the Shulchan Aruch, right. the Code of Jewish Law, which was in Hebrew, and mm-hmm. actually doesn't tell you how to build it. No, it only just... tells you the rules mm-hmm. what makes it kosher, ritually mm-hmm. fit. Right? So we, we, wanted, we had to do the, both the practical, like here's how to build the thing, mm-hmm. but also um, you know, take all that, what was in, lost, inaccessible, is a better word, inaccessible within the tradition and, and make it accessible. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and to do it in a very contemporary mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. So I think another piece of it was the pictures of us in the catalog look like every other American, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in their 20s, mm-hmm. you know, really long hair. And mm-hmm. um, you should see, you know, the picture of me on the back of the catalog. I haven't looked in a long time. So I have much on my shelf at home. I'll go home and look tonight. Yeah, <laughs> a lot more here, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It was just we looked contemporary, and that was a way of saying it isn't a choice between living in the contemporary mm-hmm. moment or doing the Jewish thing. It was you could do both. You know, I think also one of the things that's always really appealed to me, and this is a a big um question I have about about community like it was also not nostalgic it was about mining the past but that 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 contemporariness to say this is relevant today this is not about let's try to capture something old um but but rather let's try to bring this into to the you know Mm -hmm. cherish it and use it now. And I, that really resonated very powerfully with me as I was, I mean, I, I came from a rich and warm Jewish home. And as I tried to translate that into my young adult life, that, that ethos, that sensibility was very compelling to me. I think in some ways that's a way that the Jewish counterculture was a little bit different than the American counterculture, which I, I think looked at the past and said, this was bad. Mm-hmm. And we want to create a, a new future, mm-hmm. a better future. Um, it wasn't like let, let's go back to colonial days or mm-hmm. something like that. And we were really trying to recapture a Jewish past that we felt had been lost mm-hmm. in moving from you know Eastern Europe to America. But but we didn't want to just take it lock, stock, and barrel. Mm-hmm. You know, so it wasn't a retreat into orthodoxy. No, so even if you take you know Hasidism, which you know, which is a, a mystical movement that from the 18th century, I mean, there's still Hasidim today, which was a very important source for spirituality, which was also a, a big piece of of Kabbalat Shalom. Um, but we we found it as a great source of spirituality, but we rejected the notion of a, of a Rebbe, a spiritual mm-hmm. master. Mm-hmm of a, a total commitment to Jewish law, of a, <clears throat> a secondary status for women. I mean, there was yeah. much that we rejected. So it wasn't just... It was like powerfully modern and, right. and forward-looking. Right? So when it wasn't just give us the like old-time religion. Right. It was, there's a lot that's been lost. 
Yeah. We want to recapture it, right. but we want to recapture it for this moment, not to go back to a past, which probably never existed the way we imagined right, it anyways, right, right, right. Well, I want so I, it's a great segue because I want to ask you about not necessarily the role of Rebbe, but the role of the rabbi. Because when I first met you, and I, I can't, probably I shouldn't even say met you, but when I first encountered you in person was in the early 90s. I had graduated from college and was living on the Upper West Side and was trying to build my independent Jewish life and had found a lot of meaning in the Chavara movement. I'd gone to the National Chavara Committee's Summer Institute, and I started to go to services at Anshei Chesed, which, had, which was a synagogue, an old synagogue, that had uh, you know, been somewhat moribund and then had been significantly revitalized by some of these energies and had a collection of Chavrot. But you were, the at the time, the spiritual leader of Anshei Chesed, you, but you were deliberately, at that moment in time, not a rabbi. You were so knowledgeable and so soulful and so um, honored as a leader. But my understanding in the early 90s was, but not a rabbi. And so I can, and, and so here you were in, in Sconston community. Can you sure. reflect on that? I think it, um, it was uh, in the Chabara, the notion that we were all equals and that this was participatory was 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 very important. I mean, the reality, you know, was wasn't always. I mean, there was some people who knew more. There were some people who just were more leaders than other people who were happy not to lead. But but the idea was that we were all equal participants in the in the group. We all were responsible uh, for everything. In some ways, as I said, it, it was a reaction to synagogue life where yeah. the rabbi and the cantor did everything and people they were, were the passing. symbolic Jews. And, right. There's, yeah. Right. Symbolic exemplars. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very famous book among rabbis by Rabbi Jack Bloom, Rabbi <laughs> Dr. Jack Bloom. So, uh, so and I... I and I think it's really interesting that um, the people that were in the in Chavrat Shalom in your early years, the number of them who became rabbis is, is relatively small. Yeah. Uh, uh, more people became Jewish studies professors, Doctor, rabbi, and they felt like yeah. that was that was a way to have a career that was Jewish, but they that felt you know more comfortable to them than the rabbis. So it was some there was a reaction against that, and. I, you know, I th think that felt good. And then at some point, uh, I think two things happened. One was, I said, "Look, but I actually have I just I had a very good Jewish background, um, and I just therefore I knew a, a lot of uh, Jewish texts, etc." So the reality is, we weren't, weren't all the same. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I think it was for me, it certainly was a sense of it was my own psychological development like i felt like oh i i i have a voice i want to i want to teach at the synagogue i i was on jacasa i started off running programs which mm -hmm. was enabling other people to teach and mm -hmm. to to speak and i came to a place where i felt you know what i i feel like i i want to do this i'm i'm ready to do this and therefore i went to you know i graduated rabbinic school school at 41 not because I was there for twenty years. No, the opposite. I was on a fast track, but but I think that was and and I would just add one other thing. I I, I think 
the Kabbalah movement, to call it that, suffered somewhat by not having leadership. I don't know if you remember this, but I, I, my last year of rabbinical school, I, uh, the assignment at the time was that uh, David Teutsch, who was directing contemporary civilization, would have us uh, analyze an institution, preparing us for leadership. And I, um, I was getting ready to graduate. I was getting ready to start working at what was then Reconstructions Rabbinical College, and. I um, I studied the National Chavarot Committee, and my big question was, what does leadership look like in a democratic context? And and I interviewed you, um, mm-hmm. and we had this long conversation. I came to New York and sat in your office. I think you were already at the SAJ by that point, and and we had a long conversation about what does leadership look like. And you were really meditating on, on this, like how to how to foster that community, but have someone who really is first among equals. Right, it's a, it's an ongoing, yeah. an ongoing question, and there's no simple answer. And you know, there's a wide diversity. I mean, there's some pieces of the Jewish countercultures that are to call the Jewish Renewal Wing, if mm-hmm. you want to, that really has has moved towards the Rabbi spiritual model. master mm-hmm. model, and you know, which has its pluses and and minuses. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, it's very hard. To, I think all rabbis. Um, just about every denomination struggle with, you know, how much authority do I have or do I want to use versus how do I empower other people? And there's, and it's, there's no simple answer. Do you have a vision of leadership? Like what, when, once you made the decision to come to RRC and get the, the rabbinical degree and, and, and how, you know, how, how you poured yourself into leadership in a different way? After the degree, uh, and in some ways, it's just what I said. I think you're always trying to balance it, but the truth is, I, I f- looking back in my life, I feel there's a one of the themes that runs through it is really a desire to make the the riches of the Jewish tradition, which I, you know, because of my Jewish education, I had access to, make that accessible to as many people as possible. Yeah. So um, resource and guide and, and well, but just because the sense that the Jewish world would be a better world if more people had that mm-hmm. access, and clearly then people would be making their own choices, you know, feeling like, well, I know, I I always feel comfortable with the cho- choices I'm making. The issue of well, is this Jewish enough or authentic enough is really a question for me because I f- feel I'm. I'm deeply Jewish, um, deeply rooted in the tradition. The, I, I mean, uh, there's things I've done which I look back on and think are stupid, but <laughs> you know, or just didn't work. Or, but I don't, I don't feel inauthentic. I feel like I'm authentically struggling with the tradition. I may be making the wrong decision. I'm sure sometimes I do, and I, I think the Jewish world would be a great world if pe- everybody felt that 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 confidence or that ability, yeah. you know, based on some knowledge yeah. um, to to make choices. I think that's a premise of a Reconstructionist approach is a tremendous amount of empowerment, but it presumes education and it presumes knowledge that you're, you're it's not just about desire or individual autonomy, mm-hmm. that you're, you're, you're doing, you're making those decisions in the context of 
and I, I learned this from from David Teutsch, from community, but that's both horizontal, like the community that's actually around us, and the vertical community, the community that preceded right. us and with an eye toward the future. But within that, it's a big experiment because we do live in this fluid and unprecedented moment. So yes, and and you know, and the, that is, I think, the struggle for reconstructionist congregations in particular. You know, and often, you know, people don't. You know, don't commit to the study part, or or have they studied enough, right? And 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 there's no magic. Well, if you if you learn this whole book, then you'll know it all. Yeah. There isn't. You no. know, there isn't. A, you know, the study of Torah is a lifelong enterprise. There's I, no, I no gradu- graduation. Right. No. I graduated from rabbinical school knowing how little I knew. You know, right. like but but at least I knew how to navigate. You know, yeah. and navigate that. Scene. And that's why I, you know, I with my unusual background for. Not unique, but unusual for a liberal rabbi. It's yeah. like I, I I don't have that when I know like most of my colleagues feel they're always questioning like how much do I know enough, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, and am I am, am I really legitimate in the thing mm-hmm. the decisions I'm making? Mm-hmm. So a lot of your uh, the last several years have been like the, in addition to the kind of the catalog work, and I I still use when I'm doing. Preparation for holidays. I'll pull your Jewish holidays uh, volume off the shelf. Um, you also have written several books that are um, more. They have an arc. They have a big. You know, they, there's a an invitation to begin at the beginning and read through to the end, as opposed to the, something like the catalog where you could dip in on your own. So it seems like th- that's part of that impulse to to educate and to illuminate and to open up for people. Yeah, so the holiday book, you know, talks about the holidays, and and then I did. I was after twenty five years after the catalog, there was a question of redoing the catalog, or, or really what what the Jewish catalog would say today, mm-hmm. and um, and out of that came uh, a book of life, uh, embracing Jewish Judaism as a spiritual uh, practice. The sense that spirituality um, is now kind of or it could be understood as the overall kavanah, the overall intention um, for, for for Judaism, and um, and uh, and that was right in a sense. It was a a, a bigger. You know, it wasn't chapter ch- chapters. It was a kind of a sense of overall unity that mm-hmm. the spirituality ran through everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, still divided by all the different you know pieces of. Of um, social justice and, and Torah and study, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just so I'm so um, interested in your current project, um, which is really it's digital. And because I think of you, I mean, I guess I guess I think back to um, that first time I went into Anshe Chesed, and I know this is part of the the, the newsletter that you're putting out. What I remember is walking in is big, big. It's one of these, you know, Upper West Side uh, synagogues, uh, the, the kind that you see in movies, right. tall two, ceilings, two, stories, two you know, yeah. rooms, and and in that space, you were, you were. It must have been. I think it was probably the first Yom Kippur that I stayed in New York rather than went home to my my parents' synagogue, and you were singing a nigun. You were singing this wordless melody, for. 15 minutes or so and you know really kind of bringing us all to a place of uh, internal contemplation and um, and 
I, I, I for, for whatever reasons, like that, that, that image of you and that music, and it feels exactly opposite to a digital project, um, even as I know you're trying to capture some of it. So, um, I just, like, as we wind down, what, what, you know, what, what are you, what are you thinking about now and what do you hope to accomplish? And if you have any thoughts about, uh, I do feel like I'm part of a larger, like, reconstructionist community, even as folks are scattered all over the place, like how, and I feel like the listenership of Hashivenu from the people who come and talk to me, that there's a, a, a growing sense of connection there, but it's, but there's a, obviously, it's, it's more virtual. It's, it's rather than the kind of face to face connection that, I'm I'm more accustomed to. Uh, you know, it's a, I, needless to say, it's a challenge for a person my age. To, <clears throat> this whole digital world, you know, some sometimes you feel you know like you're just too old to yeah. really to really capture it. Um, you know, and I wonder about these you know virtual communities. You know, can they really be communities? And um, and you know, there certainly is a value to them. For, People who that they don't have a choice, right? Yeah. There is no community right around them. Um, but I, I think it's it's you know there is I mean all sorts of w- ways that the digital again to use the words I was just using make things accessible. Yeah. You can reach you know lots of people in, in new ways, and then sort of I'm. I'm you know this newsletter is 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 a way to to try and do that and to take the experiences and the knowledge the experiences I I had for the years I was a congregational rabbi and the resources I gathered at that time and share them with other people so so if people want to know more about this new project how would they find out about it if people would like to uh, subscribe to my newsletter it's free and they could just go to my website which is michael strassfeld Dot com, and there's a, a link there to s- sign up for the newsletter. And the newsletter is weekly and it has a, a word of Torah about the Torah portion and a, an intention and a verse to focus on for a week and a, a link to me uh, singing a, a Negoan or a, a song. Um, so again, michaelstrasfeld.com. And it's all part of this larger project, which is the book I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Which is a well. Maybe we'll end up with this. Tell, tell us about your new book. Um, so I'm work. I am just about completed um, a new book. The, the working title is Judaism Disrupted, and um, it's an interesting. I mean, there's a variety of arcs that you probably could see just from our conversation today. But um, I I uh, grew up in, a, in an Orthodox home, a modern Orthodox home, and um, you know, I've gone to the Chavra and to Reconstructionist College, um, places from there. And um, if anything, I've become somewhat more radical in my my thinking over that period of time. And the book is really the starting point is a sense that Judaism hasn't successfully reacted to how to live in the contemporary world. And that we, on some level, have been tinkering around the edges, and that really, um, to to meet the challenges of the 21st century, we really need to kind of radically reconstruct, as Kaplan and others would say, our Judaism for the contemporary moment. And so that's what the book attempts to do, in in 
in the, again the theme, another one of the themes of my life, which is to look within the tradition. Mm -hmm. Even as I'm rejecting, I have a chapter called "Rejecting Rabbinic Judaism." Even uh, I'm rejecting some of the models and paradigms and practices of the past, but still to f look for the tradition, both uh, in Hasidism for you know kind of spiritual innovation, I would say, and uh, and um, and as well as looking in rabbinic texts that I think point to a, or it could be sources for different ways to think about um, our Judaism and how we interact with a, a world that without borders and boundaries. Um, I'll share for our listeners that uh, we had a really wonderfully successful convention in November of 2018, and Michael was a guest in the was a panelist on the opening plenary session talking about some of this and, and passing. And so, so we'll put a link to it because we recorded all, um, all, uh, the, the, this session and we'll put a link in the program notes if you want to watch it. And, and in the service of this radicalism, one of the things that Michael said is, you know, so you, there's, you offered a critique of synagogue services and how uh, uncompelling they are to so many people as evidenced by who's coming and who's not. And you talked about the possibly jettisoning everything, including possibly the Shema. And I saw you, you also did a follow-up workshop, and I saw you later in the convention and said, I was overwhelmed by people who came to me and said, you can't give up on the Shema. And you said, okay, so we'll keep the Shema. Like, but they they, they got very fixated on on that particular um, suggestion as, and you worried a little bit that they missed your larger point about uh, boldly making change. So um, I urge you to uh, click on that link and know that... Um, if that moment in the recording makes you uncomfortable that he's backed away from it, if that helps you open up to the larger <laughs> to the larger message. So uh, I can think of here's where I want to end, which is uh, I, I, I don't know that I shared this with you. I was really privileged um, in September to travel with our board chair, Seth Rosen, to visit with Congregation Dor Hadash, the Reconstructionist community in Pittsburgh that met in the Tree of Life Synagogue. And that was the um, community that signed up for highest refugee Shabbat. So obviously they were very they, uh, deeply affected by the shooting. Um, and they, they lost one member, Dr. Jerry Rabinowitz, and, and another member, Dan Lager, was very seriously injured and several other people who were either there or on the grounds, the, the whole community. And so I led a healing service for them. Uh, the, the service was about um, the theme of brokenness and wholeness. And I, 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 I brought an absolutely beautiful teaching that you had created and that I found on our website, Ritual Well, um, and so I just, you know, I just wanted to share with you that, um, and to just commend, you know, the, the thoughtfulness and the sensitivity of your writing, whether it's in the short excerpts of the newsletter or in the larger expositions of your full length books. Um, and just to say what a pleasure and an honor it is to be in relationship and in community with you. Thank you very much. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Michael Strassfeld, for our wonderful conversation about his life in a certain way and about all, a lot of different ways to build and think on community and leadership within community. Um, we have, we're going to have a very rich selection of resources on Hashivenu's website, which is hashivenu.fireside.fm. And you can also find more resources on reconstructingjudaism.org and on ritualweb.org. I am Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashi Venu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. Hashi Venu, Adonai.